Hello, my name is Vijay. I was born in southern India and that's where I spent the first 20 years of my life. I was born into a Hindu family and I had friends from different faiths. Muslims, Christians, Hindu people. So so naturally I had a confusion regarding which god I should pray to. And at age 7 I decided to be an agnostic and decided to make my prayers to the unknown god without mentioning the name of any particular deity. So my whole being was panting after the true identity of of, of god right from my childhood so uh, so i i i continued my life and at age 12 i met jesus i was watching a biography of christ on television and that's and that's when god chose to reveal himself through his son and when i met jesus it was as if i knew him for eternity he not only revealed to me the things inside my heart but my eyes saw his glory i put my faith in him and i believed in his name and i believed that he was the son of the living god and uh, the following years were so beautiful when i was whenever i was in trouble i had this vision of jesus embracing me so i i just met a man whom i knew for eternity and uh, so and also my life was beautiful i i had everything that i needed uh, the most loving parents every kind of financial blessing that i needed and i was i was the best student in my school but life took a big turn when i was 19 years old i due to, due to a series of events in my life uh, i ended up in a state of depression i battled with depression for 2 years until the word of god came into my life Uh, until this point i've never read the bible so i started reading god's word and i i started going to a church and i was baptized against strong opposition from my parents and uh, god not only rescued me from the state of depression but also redeemed it so whenever i look back now i feel uh, so blessed that god took me through this painful period of life but uh, by this point in my life uh, i had the worst academic credentials and i was a complete failure academically and uh, vocationally but god changed everything he made me finish my graduate degree in england and he also again surprised me by by making me a phd student in canada something that i never deserved it was all grace so at age 26 i moved to canada and i just thought i was all set for life uh, a life that i would glorify god uh, the most and uh, just live a successful life but i wasn't I I didn't know about the storm that was about to hit my life. Um my parents called me up one day and asked me to leave the ways of God and to embrace a pagan lifestyle and to marry a Hindu woman. I refused to do so, but my parents called me again and they told me that I had only two options, that I had to do what they say or they'll commit suicide and I had to watch them die. So I didn't know what to choose. I I was left dumbfounded. brain crippled my heart uh, I, i simply was too weak to make decisions so i surrendered my to, myself to jesus and cried out for help and it was during these months that the word of god came upon me and it was so clear and so pristine and uh, god was so clear in telling me that i cannot choose the world and the people and the riches that it offers above him and uh, that i have to deny everyone uh, if, and and love him the most and uh, so he was so clear uh, in his communications towards me and he asked me to choose him well i did choose him and uh, and the ramifications followed 
my parents tried to commit suicide and not just once and it also led to a, a severe health problems to them and this this phase of struggle continued for a while when jesus asked me to leave them because it was it was going nowhere and god completely uh, took hold of me and made sure that my heart for him was for him alone and uh, he he knocked off every kind of idol that was in my heart especially the idol of loving my own parents above him so so i decided uh, to leave every everything in behind me including my phd and i le- leaned on to his call to follow him and to be his disciple in full time ministry so it, it it was so painful and it is still very painful i became the scum of my family and of my culture and uh, i was even considered a curse to the family and even my birth was considered a curse but i know that this pain is nothing when compared to the joy that is set before me and uh, god's word says in 1 peter 4 that uh, that i should count it when when i am insulted for the name of the christ i am blessed and that the spirit of god is upon me so what else can i ask for uh, he called me to himself and he has poured his spirit upon me uh, i was nowhere in my life lost in a pagan world he chose me he he disciplined me and now finally he has he has took my heart for himself so throughout my life i've done so many things against god but he never let me go and now uh, he has also embraced me with his complete love a, a life for jesus and with jesus is the only life worth living for and that too is possible only because of jesus and his grace to god be glory middle of a teaching series here at Westside Church called Story. And today, we're going to jump into the story of Joseph. Joseph's an interesting character. God often describes himself in the Old Testament, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jacob has a son, has a bunch of sons, and one of them is Joseph. Uh, But despite the fact that God self-describes himself as the faithful covenant-keeping God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, Joseph actually occupies more print space in the book of Genesis than his daddy, his grandpappy, or his great-granddad, Abram, the moon-worshipping pagan who got pulled out of Ur of the Chaldees to advance God's redemptive purposes on planet Earth. Abram God said, I'll bless you, and you will be a conduit of blessing to the nations. And that's why you and I are here, because God disrupted Abram. He became Abraham, and Jesus comes through the lineage of Abraham. And here we meet Joseph today, international man of mystery, a dreamer from a dysfunctional family. His dad is a dithering, doting, dysfunctional old man who dotes on Joseph as his favorite son. And we discover, as we're about to open, either in your app, 
or if you're old school and you brought a book with you, open your Bible uh, to Genesis 37, we find the blended family that simply did not blend. It's like a nightmare version of the Brady Bunch. When my kids were younger, they showed me something on YouTube called Does It Blend? And there's a scary guy in a white coat and goggles, and the last episode I saw, he put an iPhone 6 and a Samsung Galaxy into a blender to see if it would blend. And he managed to make it blend. Blenders, huge things like giant turbines destroy the iPhone. They actually blend. But this family never blended. It's a cauldron of conflict and seething sibling rivalry. But as we open the pages of Genesis 37, let's meet Joseph and hear his story and discover what God would say to us through it. Genesis 37 verse 1 says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my mighty sheaf arose and towered above your lame sheaves and stood upright. And behold, your wilting, mildew-covered, fungus-covered sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my great and mighty sheaf, thus saith the Lord. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So his brothers might have been a bunch of knuckleheads, but they didn't need spiritual discernment to recognize the import and interpretation of the dream, that at some point in God's good and perfect plan in the future, Joseph would be elevated to a place of significance and prominence and actually exercise leadership and oversight over the brothers who despised him. And so, not surprisingly, Scripture says, so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then we see that Joseph totally lacked interpersonal sensitivity because he goes from an agricultural dream to a cosmic intergalactic dream and ups the ante because it isn't just his loathsome siblings who bow down before him, but mama and papa will do so too. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, na, 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 na. No, he didn't say that, but he said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Oh, yeah. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept his saying in mind, 
Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. In other words, he's there to snoop on, to spy on, and to do a performance evaluation on his brothers. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. So here we find someone, namely Joseph, who's on God's wavelength, on the revelatory wavelength of God who is the revealer of dreams and mysteries. He's a dreamer. He's a spoiled brat. He's his dad's favorite boy. Now you say, why did that happen? Well, it happened because his dad, Jacob, was in love with a gal called Rachel. And he said to his uncle Laban, as he wanted uh, Rachel's hand in marriage, I want Rachel's hand in marriage. And uncle Laban said, yeah, but for me to give my daughter away, you need to work for me for seven years. And then after seven years of working for me, you can have her hand in marriage. But Jacob gets scammed by Laban. I don't quite know how Laban pulled this off, but Jacob marries the wrong gal. He wakes up in the honeymoon suite and, ah, it's the ugly sister, Leah. And he says, what just happened here? I've been scammed by my miserable uncle, Laban. So he goes and confronts Laban, and Laban says, whatever. If you want Rachel, work for me another seven years. And these years fly by because of his love and affection for Rachel. But they faced a challenge in their marital life. Rachel faced the emotionally and spiritually paralyzing stigma of being barren. But then God disrupts her barrenness with the gift, the gift of Joseph, when his dad Jacob is in advanced years. So he's a, a little surprise package when Jacob's in advanced years, and he's the son of the favorite wife in this crazy, blended, dysfunctional family. But as if that isn't bad enough, Jacob makes Joseph an ornamental robe. It's a pulsating, technicolor, neon flashing, pulsating reminder to his brothers that they're all runners up behind the apple of Jacob's eye, Joseph. And things get even worse because this spoiled brat, this dreamer who arrogantly foists spiritual revelation on his siblings is a tattletale. He brings bad reports to dad about 
his brothers. There's a biopic which stars Oscar-winning actor George C. Scott as General Patton. And in North America, it was distributed as Patton. But in the United Kingdom, we distributed it as Patton, Lust for Glory. And that could be Joseph, Joseph the dreamer and his lust for glory. And so his arrogance, his special son status, the favoritism, the singular affection that Jacob had for Joseph, the dreams all exacerbate this sizzling sibling rivalry. And the flames of hatred intensify till, as we read, the brothers hatch a murder plot. But instead of becoming murderers, they become mercenaries, and they sell them to some traveling Midianites, make 20 shekels of silver, rip up the ornamental coat, that pernicious reminder that they are not the favorites Joseph is. They daub it with the blood of an animal and say, Dad, guess what happened to Joseph? He was wounded and shredded by a ferocious animal. Meanwhile, the Midianites take Joseph to Egypt, where he works for someone called Potiphar. And there, working for Potiphar, he experiences in Genesis 39 God's favor. He's given very little supervision. He's given much responsibility. And the Scripture says four times to emphasize it for us, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with him. But there was an ongoing challenge to Joseph's integrity. There was an ongoing assault on his sexual purity. Potiphar's wife, day after day, she came after him with the same recurring invitation. Come, sleep with me, Joseph. Come to bed with me, Joseph. I want you, Joseph. And day after day after day, this isn't a singular fleeting temptation. It's an ongoing assault. Scripture says he was handsome, physically imposing and impressive. Potiphar's wife had 20-20 vision, and she had the hearts for Joseph. And she's saying, come to bed, come to bed, come to bed with me. And then one day, perhaps orchestrated by the seductress, it's just the two of them in the house. And she grabs him by his cloak. And yet again, she says, hey, big boy, come to bed with me. And Joseph proves himself to be a young man of unimpeachable integrity. He does the right thing. He flees from sexual immorality, but he pays a steep price for doing the right thing because she cries foul and claims, actually, that Joseph sexually assaulted her and holds his cloak as evidence. Well, his boss is furious, and we pick up the story in Genesis 39, verse 20, where we read these words. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. 
And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. He had the run of the place. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So he's wrongfully accused. He's on the wrong end of an injustice. He's wrongfully imprisoned, but even in the prison, he experiences the favor of God, unrestricted management of the affairs of the prison. And even in the stultifying atmosphere of a prison, the Scripture says the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph. Well, in the book of Daniel, it says God is the revealer of dreams and mysteries. And Joseph, the dreamer, is dialed into the Lord who is the revealer of dreams and mysteries. And when two of the prisoners, former servants of King Pharaoh, have bizarre, unusual dreams, he interprets them. He interprets a dream for a baker and a dream for a cupbearer. And it's a good news and a bad news interpretation. So the baker pipes up and says, okay, good news and bad news. What's the bad news? Bad news is, baker, you're going to die. Pharaoh's going to pull you out of prison. He's going to impale you, and everybody will sit and look at your corpse. Oh, not so good. And the butler, you'll be reinstated into Pharaoh's royal court. And then he says, in verse 14 of Genesis 40, he makes an appeal to the cupbearer, only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. So he's making an appeal. He basically says to the cupbearer, when you experience the reversal of fortunes that God has in store for you, when you're brought back into the confidences of King Pharaoh, when you're serving him up close and personal as the cupbearer, and you've got access to him, bend his ear and tell him, I'm here because I was abducted. I'm here because I was wrongfully accused. I'm here because I was mistreated. I've done nothing wrong. I do not deserve to be in the dungeon, so have a word with Pharaoh. But then Scripture says in Genesis 40, verse 23, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. So there's the punchline. Joseph's left hanging in a dungeon, gasping, for freedom, and the cupbearer didn't remember him. The cupbearer forgot Joseph. But this would raise a haunting question for Joseph. Had God forgotten Joseph? What would come of those dreams? Would the dreams vanish? God, the revealer of dreams and mysteries, the one who gave the dream, had he turned his back on Joseph? Was Joseph forgotten? The cupbearer forgot him. Did God forget him? He was mistreated. 
and his circumstances weren't changing had God forgotten him. He was wrongly accused and maligned, and his reputation was bruised and damaged because of the deceitful lies of a seductress. Had God forgotten him? He was wrongly imprisoned. Had God forgotten him? He was betrayed, wrongly accused, languishing in a cell. Had God forgotten Joseph? And there's a challenge for us as the children of God that when things become crushing and unbearable, we can succumb to two errors. We can land or commit one of two mistakes. One mistake is when circumstances are not going the way you thought they would, when there's adversity, challenge, opposition, betrayal, disappointment. And I've heard believers who claim to be long in the tooth in the Lord Jesus say this, they say, God must be punishing me, which is more of a ludicrous karmic idea than a biblical idea. But I've heard believers who claim to have walked with Jesus for many years and put their trust and confidence in Jesus some time ago when bad things happen, when they are mistreated, when they become the objects of contempt, hostility, abuse, mistreatment, they say, God must be punishing me. Well, Charles Spurgeon has a word for all of us, if that's what you think. He said, God's people can never by any possibility be punished for their sins. God has punished them already in the person of Christ. Christ, their substitute, has endured the full penalty for all their guilt, and neither the justice nor the love of God can ever exact again that which Christ has paid. Punishment can never happen to a child of God in the judicial sense. He can never be brought before God as his judge, as charged with guilt, because the guilt was long ago transferred to the shoulders of Christ. And the punishment was exacted at the hands of his surety. But yet, while the sin cannot be punished, while the Christian cannot be condemned, he can be chastised. While he shall never be arraigned before God's bar as a criminal and punished for his guilt, yet he now stands in a new relationship, that of a child to his parent, and as a son he may be chastised on account of sin. So tough circumstances, pain, and suffering do not signal God's punishment on your life. Your punishment already took place through the death of Jesus but God could be up to something else. Spurgeon uses old archaic language because he was fond of the King Jim version of the Bible and talks about God chastising his children, God disciplining, God correcting his children so that the life and character of Jesus can be formed in us and so that you and I can increasingly grow into the image and likeness of God's beloved Son, the Lord Jesus. And really, that's what's going on in the life of Joseph, as we'll see. But Joseph is haunted by this question, God has forgotten me. The cupbearer has forgotten me. Is that because God has forgotten me? But we need to remind ourselves this morning that God never forgets His children. God has tattoos. I don't know if you know that. 
and he's got them in an unusual place on his hands. In Isaiah 49, God says he's got tacks on the palms of his hands. And what's there? Your name, if you're a child of God. And God says, your name is engraved on the palms of my hands, and your name is ever before me. What a weird thing for God to do. It's a bit like you're a fifth-grade boy, and you've got a crush on the girl three deaths away. And rather than look at her, all dopey-eyed, you write her name on the palm of your hand, Cassandra. <laughs> and instead of looking at the vision of her pre-adolescent loveliness, you go, ooh, her name is Cassandra. And God has your name ever before him. He has not forgotten you. The promise of Jesus to every single child of God is this, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Do you feel like God has forgotten you? The word of the Lord to you this morning is, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Now, Joseph was one of God's old people under the old covenant. We live in a better day. We're the new people of God under the new covenant. And in the old covenant with God's old people, Joseph experiences the presence of God. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him. Genesis 39, four times for emphasis. But in the new covenant, we have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, who is an earnest, a down payment, a foretaste of the life that is to come in glory. And the Spirit, who is the Spirit of adoption, never leaves us you're a child of God. God does not forsake you in the shadow lands of adversity, in the dark places of mistreatment. He is actively present. Jesus says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God has not forgotten you. We often still sing today and bring them out and give them a, a redux, the hymns of yesteryear. We sing Rock of Ages, which says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Then the refrain is, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Then the next verse says, When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. And there the hymn writer fastens on an amazing biblical truth that God's disposition towards his children, his sons and his daughters, redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, is that of unchanging grace. When we lived in the U.S., we were friends with a couple. He was an Episcopal priest. She was a psychotherapist, which meant she had better theology than he did. Oh, only joking. But uh, we liked to hang out with them. They were great people that loved Jesus, and we visited them in their home, and they hosted us in their kitchen, and there was a weird contraption on the kitchen floor pulsating a strange light. And the wife, who said, this was her contraption, I said, why have you got that thing up and running? She said, because I suffer from seasonal affective disorder. Now, I'd never heard of that, because in the United States, there's a name and a symptom and a diagnosis for every ill. But I discovered this is a real deal. 
that her mood was significantly altered during the winter months because of the gray skies, the lack of sunshine. And so she had this contraption that emanated ultraviolet light in her kitchen. Her moods changed because of the seasons. But we need to land on the liberating truth that God's mood does not change. Whatever season you're in, He invites us to rest in His unchanging grace. And the same affection that God the Father has for His dearly loved Son, the Lord Jesus, is the affection and love that He set upon you. What was going on with Joseph? He's complaining about mistreatment. He's trying to get the cupbearer to speak up on his behalf. Joseph's agenda was at odds with God's agenda. Joseph wanted freedom from prison. God was committed to character formation in prison. Joseph wanted validation and vindication. God wanted transformation and sanctification. Joseph, as a precocious, spoiled brat 17-year-old, had a very clear sense of the unique purpose and role he would have in God's kingdom. He got a glimpse of his destiny, but he communicated that to his siblings with arrogance and pride, rubbing their noses in the fact that he was destined for a leadership role, which would put him in a place of significant leadership and prominence, and he would have oversight over his brothers. And at one point future, they would actually bow down before him. But in the prison, God is humbling Joseph because God wanted Joseph to walk in his destiny with a sense of humility. The Scripture says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And in the prison, in the shadowlands, where Jacob had given him up for dead, where the cupbearer had forgotten all about him, there's Joseph. And God, the expert surgeon, is at work, humbling Joseph. Henry Nouwen said, it takes a great deal of humiliation to create a little bit of humility. And he'd gone through the humiliation of being sold as a slave. He'd gone through the humiliation of being wrongfully accused of sexual assault. He'd gone through the humiliation of having his reputation in shreds. And why does this happen? Because the Lord will use suffering to sanctify us. The Lord will use pain and disappointment and betrayal to reveal the idols in our hearts, to purify us, and to draw us into deeper devotion to Jesus. Did you pick that up? In Vijay's story, he actually describes his challenging seasons as a blessing because God was coming after the idols in his heart. The Lord will use isolation, restrictive circumstances, mistreatment, the contempt of others, circumstances that we can't navigate or manipulate our way out of, to draw us into a deeper place of dependency and to strip us of self-sufficiency. And God's ambition in all of this, as He seems to use suffering as His special tool and means of sanctification, is to make us more like Jesus. It says 
in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, as Joseph in prison, has the cupbearer forgotten him? Well, suddenly the light bulb pops on above the cupbearer's head. All of two years later, when Pharaoh has a couple of very unsettling dreams, and in God's timing, full two years after the cupbearer is restored to the king's service in the palace, Pharaoh has two bizarre dreams. And he says, what in the world do they mean? And suddenly, the cupbearer remembers. And Joseph comes, and because of his interpretation of the dreams, he's able to tell King Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that the nation will experience seven years of unprecedented superabundance but that will be followed by seven years of severe, blistering famine. And so, Joseph ascends to power and influence as Pharaoh's right-hand man, and he becomes number two in all of Egypt. And he's actually the one who oversees the food storage program during seven years of plenty and abundance, and food distribution during seven years of famine. And all this happens 22 years after Joseph has a dream. And now Joseph, 39 years of age, meets his brothers who don't recognize him because he blends in. He's become enculturated. He very much looks like and acts like and speaks like an Egyptian. And he looks nothing like the precocious 17-year-old spoiled brat. There he is the second most powerful man in the whole world. And during the famine, because they're running out of food rapidly, the brothers come to secure food from Egypt, and they meet Joseph face to face. Let's see what we can learn from his response. So, in Genesis 45, verses 3 through 8, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So they think, oh no, this is the day of reckoning. This is the day when Joseph exacts revenge for the brutalizing that we gave him, for selling him as a slave, for mistreating him. But Joseph turns to his brothers with an invitational tone and says, come near to me. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph discerns the sovereign hand of God in his circumstances. But then, as Jacob expires, the brothers are weary, and they tell Joseph a lie that Jacob wanted him to promise that he wouldn't hurt them because they're still not sure. And so Joseph speaks again words to his brothers in Genesis 50. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So what do we learn here? God does not forget His children. Romans 8 tells us, nothing shall separate the love of God. 
separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What we discover from Joseph is that he's able to be freed from the past of mistreatment because he practices the power of total forgiveness, and he's able to do that because he understands that God orchestrates events to advance his redemptive agenda. God is at work. There's an invisible hand that guided Joseph and their orchestrated events and filtered all of the circumstances, prosperity, favor, success, mistreatment, abuse, maligning, misrepresentation, all of that was filtered through God's hands because God was at work for His glory and for Joseph's ultimate good. We need to remind ourselves this morning that all things work together for good, for the ultimate good of those that love God and are called according to His purpose. God has not forgotten you. If you're a child of God, whatever season of life you're in, God has not forgotten you. And maybe the severe circumstances you find yourself in signal the hand of the surgeon is at work, shaping you and forming you so that you let go of self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and you press into Jesus, that you allow God to pull the idols from your heart and live with un divided and undiluted loyalty to King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, at times we are bewildered by the twists and turns of life. It seems like we, we live on a roller coaster ride of ups and downs. And for some of us here, we're struggling with discouragement because life is not unfolding the way we planned. But this day and this morning, we want to submit and surrender to you as Lord and sovereign and God and King and say, have your way, have your way. Those of us who are discouraged and feel like you've turned your back on us, we pray that that lie would be vaporized by the Spirit of God. Father, we thank you that the blood of Jesus guarantees access to your heart and your throne room. We thank you that you have accepted us fully and freely all because of Jesus. We thank you that adversity does not mean that you are punishing us, for you have punished your own dear Son for us on our behalf. And we thank you that you've poured your Spirit, the Spirit of adoption, into our hearts that enables us to cry, Abba, Father. So we pray for those of us discouraged and deflated, we would experience the energizing presence of the Holy Spirit, and He would enable us to fix our eyes and our gaze and our hearts afresh on Jesus, even as we remember His sacrifice for us this morning. For we pray it in His strong and matchless name. Amen.